Hello and welcome to It Is Complicated, the podcast where we answer every single question with It Is Complicated, including the title, which is It Is Complicated. Today's episode is a little bit special and we're going to start with a sort of content notice about some of the things that we're going to be talking about because we're going to be talking about issues related to mental health and all the things that can go with that, which can include issues that are difficult, that can be challenging, that might be upsetting for people. So we will be including discussions of self-harm, of suicide, of depression and anxiety. Is there anything I'm missing, Dr. Joe? PTSD. PTSD, certainly. Yeah. If you're impacted by anything that you hear or you're listening to this and you're like, this isn't the time for me to listen to, totally understand. Turn it off and get yourself in a good space to listen to us talk about stuff that's really difficult for both of us to talk about and is also going to be really difficult to listen to. This isn't a in the background while you're driving kind of episode. This may bring up thoughts and feelings for yourself. And if they do, go with them, feel your self-care. And there's also places like Mind, there's people like the Samaritans that you can get in touch with in the UK. And I'm sure there's the same globally, there's the Trevor Project that you can get in touch with in the US, which is an LGBT-focused mental health support line. So find those. We'll make sure that they're in the description as well. Because we, we are responsible when we discuss these things because we don't want to spring this shit on you. Definitely. And we may also speak with a sense of humor and perhaps even very dark humor to the ways that Dr. J and I discuss these things is, yeah, well, there you go. Dark um, humor, dark humor. I am dark humor. My dad was dark humor. We basically sat there and built our lives on dark humor. Well, we'll talk about that a bit, I'm sure, because one of the ways in which Dr. J and I have bonded over the years is through our appreciation of very, very, very dark humor when it comes to very difficult topics. And I've been a performer and done these topics on stage. And I can tell you that often I deal with these things by making them funny. So we are not making light of anyone, least of all ourselves, certainly not of very serious conditions, which we do take very seriously. So please keep that in mind as you listen. I was going to say, this is our coping mechanism. When that pain gets too much, one of the ways that I've learned to cope with it is to laugh at it. With that in mind, welcome to you all. As always, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Dr. Jay, would you like to introduce yourself? I gave myself the job title Harbinger of Change because ThoughtWorks allowed me to do so. I gave myself the gender, transgressive, non-binary, genderqueer because the New Zealand government allowed me to do so. I am what happens when you allow queers to self-define. I'm also a troublemaker and a hashtag queer nuisance. And to add to this, I have had diagnoses of depression, anxiety, and PTSD. When I say I've had those diagnoses, that's perhaps something that we could get into as to what it means to have those diagnoses. But I just thought it's good to be clear and upfront as to the bits what I know about. <laughs> okay. The bits what is me. I can probably do something similar. My name is Josephine Baird. I'm an independent scholar, activist, and artist. I like to make a spectacle of myself on the stage and also to draw funny pictures and put them on the internet. Many of those instances of performance have to do with dealing with trauma, dealing with anxiety, dealing with the absurdities of living in a world that is so against people being different. And I'm different in many ways. 
in this particular arena. I have a background in psychology. I studied it at university for my first degrees in psychology. I have worked <laughs> at some point as, weirdly enough, a peer support worker. I've given training to psychologists and working clinical psychologists. I've also spoken at the British Psychological Society and led group therapy sessions. So in some ways, I have that angle, the sort of behind-the-scenes therapy and psychology angle. And myself, I've also been depression and anxiety to begin with, but then raging complex PTSD. So that's my background. And it's so, hard for me to talk about that because I don't talk about it very often. So. And that's why I'm hoping that this feels like a safe enough space for both of us to talk about these things. I am just off the back of two and a bit years of therapy. Possibly by the time this comes out, I will have had my last session with my therapist and have officially been released into the world as a brand new being. But that, <laughs> has, taken, <laughs> but that has taken a lot of work. And I kind of almost wanted to start from the start and explain even what it was like being a teenager or some of the family stuff that builds up to this from my perspective. So my grandmother suffered badly from depression and had a massive breakdown when my grandfather died and ended up in a mental hospital. And when I say mental hospital, we're talking old style institution for multiple years when I was about 11 onwards till I was about 14 especially in New Zealand you're transitioning from primary to intermediate to secondary schools during those time so you're constantly having reinforced social groups and there'd be lots of jokes about people being mad and being in the mental institution called ting seat and that was where my grandmother was so kids at school would tease each other about being sent to this place and my grandmother was there. So I spent a lot of time hiding that fact from my peers and it was not something talked about massively with any of our family friends. Oh, she recovered from that and she was able to live the next 15 plus years, I will say quite happily, while being medicated. That was a really important thing to see. So the other side of the family suffered really badly from anxiety. And I recognize that now looking back at the time you don't know this, you just see somebody reacting to things. So both of those meant that I grew up in family and in a space where mental health was there and wasn't great, but also wasn't talked about. When I did start to go to therapy, my dad's comment to another family member was, yeah, it's only people like Jay who need to go to therapy. It didn't need to happen to any of the men in the family or anything like that, which is a very, of his time, of his space. And one of the things that I've had to come to terms with is that my grandmother was essentially a third parent for most of my life. Well, two of my three parents had mental health conditions. They were also cis, heteronormative, white people in a system without any other complications really impacting on them. So there was a lot of stuff that they got a slightly easier level than I did, perhaps, if you think about it that way. So I can recall about 12 or 13 running knives down my arms and knowing how to kill myself from there and struggling with that pretty much all the way through till I was well into my 30s and even my 40s. Just those constant ideas that there was a way of ending the pain that I was in. There was a way of doing it, and if I just did it, this would all stop, which is really hard. And it's about understanding how much pain you're in that your peers may not be experiencing. 
or that your peers may be experiencing in different ways. No one at school seemed to notice that I would occasionally be incredibly withdrawn and tearful and then I'd be fine a couple of weeks later and I'd be bouncing back. So it was always described as manic depression because you spend so much time masking the depression, you go completely manic till you run out of energy and then you crash. Also, as an aside, I grew up as a teenager in the 80s. I understood nuclear war. I understood what it would mean. I understood that it was imminent and I understood that I would die at any moment. And that was just like rooted inside my dreams, my anxieties. I would wake up screaming from about 10, 11, kind of that time when you're not a little kid anymore. You start to be exposed more to the world. You start to try to think more about what's going on. And my fear of nuclear war really never went away until this last breakdown. So about just over two years ago, I broke completely. I'd been at ThoughtWorks for 18 months, which meant that I hadn't been bullied. So all of the workplace bullying that I'd experienced that had built up a large amount of PTSD, unrecognized by myself and so many people, suddenly it was all of these protective things were there and there was nothing to protect me from. So I was constantly waiting for the foot to fall and just getting more and more and more anxious. I literally was psychotic. I could see things falling from the sky. I was so suicidal that going to work was the only thing that stopped me from sitting there obsessing about how to kill myself in a way that wouldn't upset my partner. And also how to survive the nuclear bomb that was about to fall and how I would get myself, my crippled ass, not very healthy self from where I was to where my partner would be. Because those are the two things to think about, obviously. One is how to kill yourself and the other one is how to survive a nuclear apocalypse. I would wake screaming most nights because I couldn't control the anxiety. I wasn't sleeping. I was eating horrendously, self-harming, trying to kill myself through through food, which is actually a recognized thing. And once I recognized what I was doing, it was good. Well, it wasn't good, but once you know the coping behavior, you can start to work with it and understand why it's there and then start to manage it and address the underlying issues so you no longer have that coping behavior. So here I am now, an amount of time into 2020, a lot of it has been spent under lockdown, completely in some kind of isolation fear in a way that should be inducing me a massive anxiety breakdown. And I have been mostly fine. I've had one nightmare in about a year. But the way to that has been putting in a lot of work. So that's my background in a pricey. I'm not sure how pricey that was. Josephine's been nodding at me like a really good therapist. (laughs) And I don't expect Josephine to have to give exactly the same because this is all about how much we are willing to share and how far we are willing to push our boundaries and how safe we feel. I almost have no boundaries in some ways. (laughs) (laughs) And as your therapist, I should tell you, that's not a good thing. (laughs) I don't have boundaries around information. I will quite happily share pieces of information like this. I do have boundaries and set them quite, quite well at the moment, I believe. I I agree. I say that as a joke (laughs) and I laugh with Dr. J about these. I know we said at the beginning that we deal with these things with humor. We've also known each other for 15 years and perhaps I should have included that in our discussion because Dr. J and I will laugh about the most apparently inappropriate thing. Also, Josephine has been there tag teaming with my partner when I have been actively suicidal, having to sit in an an almost ensure 24-hour care of me 
because I have not been in any kind of functioning state to leave alone. We have been around long enough to share these things, but I'm actually now feeling guilty that I may not have done the same thing of sitting with Josephine in the same <laughs> That's okay. way. That's okay. Oh God. <laughs> That's not how this kind of thing works. No, but I understand what you're saying. I'm moved that you would feel that, but you show care in other ways. And that's the other thing about mental health. It's as someone who has studied it in an academic sense and a scholarly sense and having to have gone through it personally is that it's relative. Like all things, mental health is a relative state. It's relative to what you consider normal. You know, the way you've described that before, which I absolutely love normal for a given value of normal, right? But the assistance you've shown me, the care that you've shown me is equivalent as far as I'm concerned in magnitude and has meant the world to me when you've helped me through other situations that may not have been immediately life-threatening, but were as important to my livelihood and my living state. You've also been there emotionally when I've had other issues and other times in my life when I've had very, very difficult concerns. And yes, the genesis of the podcast was in part after a particularly rough patch for me. There was an incident that occurred that meant that I was particularly sad. That particular incident, I'm not going into detail. Yeah. So, Jay, in terms of relative assistance and support, I consider you kin and family in the most queer and wonderful way. And you have certainly kept me well as much. And I think of wellness that way. A notion of contentment is not the word. And I hear that sometimes or equilibrium maybe that's also not really something you and I live with <laughs> in any real sense <laughs> the other thing is of course I'm recently discovered that I'm quite neuroatypical <laughs> that means my world is often askew in some fabulous way and being queer folk the way we are we're often going to have to deal with things that would be traumatizing <laughs> on a daily basis so we may never live in equilibrium. We may never be able to be content in that way. But what we can live is in a notion of wellness and security and have safer spaces like the one that Jay and I have created, hopefully in this podcast, but also for ourselves so that we can sit here during lockdown in this absolutely unprecedented, bizarre time called 2020 and deal with some of the things that we find particularly difficult using the skills that we've both learned. And I think that is the difference for you, Jay, when you mentioned you are currently in a circumstance that weirdly enough matches up to so many of your apocalyptic fears from the past, right? And now you can cope with it because you've actually had treatment for that. I heard the good joke about that. I saw somebody right at the beginning of all this said on Twitter, it was like, you know, the only people who are really coping with this pandemic well are people who have PTSD because they've all been worrying about this happening. So they've all been preparing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. all true. I was like, no, I know what to do in this kind of situation because I've been worrying about this for years. And that's the weird thing. We're preppers, but we're not preppers. No. We're not the sort of people who've got bunkers and things like that. <laughs> we're the people who have mentally run through thousands and thousands. I mean, literally, yeah. I have done the good place in my mind on scenarios like this. Yeah nightly which is also one of the reasons why i love the good place and i know josephine hasn't finished it so we're not going to spoil it yet but it's like just running that scenario of oh so you failed this time try it again change something and you just constantly do that in your head and my experience me being a 
not quite competent protagonist. I love that. <laughs> what I think is so interesting is because I have a very similar habit. And you've spoken about superpowers that have been created by difficult and challenging circumstances. I believe that's one of the superpowers that's produced my PTSD, is this ability to very, very quickly predict the future by examining all the possible elements that could come into effect, all the possible alternatives, all the possible influences, basically trying to predict the future through scientific mind, you know, mapping or, or thought experiments. And Jay's nodding. <laughs> I'm, la- I'm laughing. This, right? <laughs> I'm laughing because I've heard it as stoichiatric, I think it is, yeah. because I've done it for share prices for somebody ah, yes. and, and used the past, but I'd not heard it talked about this way. I thought it was a mathematical yeah. term or a sharesy financial economist term who are all turning around going, fuck whatever predictions we came up with. Oh my God, throw them out the window. Yeah, they're start not again. prepared. Whereas you and I are because we've been disaster thinking for, for so long that we actually know, no, 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 this is not a problem. We know how to deal with this because we've emotionally gone through this process so many times. The problem with the superpower, dear listener, however, is that by continually trying to predict the future, your brain is constantly overheating. It's like working at 150%, trying to imagine all the possible outcomes of anything that might happen. And you only need one of them or even not even that one, because, of course, the thing about disaster thinking, you're always looking for the next disaster. Now, predicting what that might be often is going to be wrong because it's very (laughs) unlikely that the 1200 disastrous notions that you've thought of will happen. But because of the ways in which someone who's had that experience or is in that particular condition thinks is that way to try and look for danger because your brain has tuned into that notion to such a degree you're constantly seeking out potential threats and weirdly enough i think that partly gives you a superpower and having gone through the process of managing that and learning the tools in which to cope has given a secondary element to that which is a notion of control now you can control that superpower Another superpower for someone who has PTSD is the ability to disassociate, which means that you can effectively leave your body when something's happening to it that is unpleasant. So if, for example, you're at the dentist and your tooth is getting drilled and you don't particularly want to feel that, you might space out, just sort of disconnect from your reality. And then when the horribleness is finished, you can come back. Wonderful superpower. It's like leaving your body. It's amazing. One of the things from mine is a constant flood of cortisol to my body, which over the years has wreaked all kinds of havoc upon parts of my body. I've got a tendency to put on a nice little belly simply because my body is just going, there is something about to happen. Quick, if we're not directly under threat, store it as fate because we're going to need it very soon. But what it also means is that I feel pain in a slightly different sense because cortisol allows you to kind of walk around pain a little bit. What it doesn't do is help your body fight inflammation. It doesn't help your body fight infections. And it's kind of coming out of the other side and going, okay, so how do I find ways to, in the midst of this craziness, take all of the cortisol out of my body? How do I find ways to ensure that my body is not producing it? Which is another whole set of skills that may come in useful for other people. The thing about those superpowers, like any superhero story, the problem is they're out of control. Think about the superhero story, any superhero narratives. Think of a movie or a comic book. The 
presumption about that narrative might be person wakes up with superpowers, does amazing thing, end of movie, end of story, right? That's the sort of narrative. But it isn't. That's not the narrative. The narrative actually is this. Person wakes up with superpowers, cannot control them, often causes significant problems for that particular character, learns to control them, does very spectacular thing, and then goes off to use those superpowers for good, right? That's the mental health journey. Hypervigilance is a word, which means that you're constantly looking out for danger, which is really useful if there is a danger. Exceptionally useful. Being able to produce cortisol <laughs> in massive amounts, really useful. Hyperhealing, very, very useful, except when you don't want it to do that, because actually the problem is it has a downside. So hypervigilance is constant mental effort and exhaustion and constantly be in a state of anxiety and fear, constantly looking for danger. If you're doing it all the time and you can't control it, it will start damaging you. And it will start having a very real physical and mental effect. So like the superhero story, what you're doing is learning to control it. So that's the second element. That is the factor of learning these skills or having these tools so that you don't have to do it all the time. But these things are not broken in you. They are habits that you formed consciously or unconsciously, to survive. Your brain has been trying to help you this whole time. Often the narrative with mental health is like, oh, you're broken or there's something wrong with your brain. No, no. Your brain has been trying to help you in situations that it knows you are having trouble surviving in. So it's going to do all these things to try and help you survive. But of course, unfortunately, it can't always predict what's going to be useful and important. So it's going to do that to the nth degree. And eventually that may end actually causing harm. So you learn tools, you learn systems, you learn ways of being to manage that really, really good thing you learn to stay alive and use it only when you need to. That's part of that particular journey that I know that Jay's gone through and I have too. There's more to it than that, but that's one aspect of it. And sometimes I think that's a really useful way to look at this. That means that the emotions that were part of that particular state of mind don't rush at me in the way that they used to. They don't just fly at me. However, I will never entirely be free from that experience. And also talking about it as a notion, even abstractly, will bring that emotion up. We've discussed that before in episodes like this, that topics are going to bring up emotions and we refuse to, <laughs> to try and be these objective characters and discuss issues without the emotions that they elicit. That's, that's ludicrous. So just talking about the topic is going to bring up difficult emotions. And the secondary element of that is that as queer people, and we talked about this in a special episode, that we're often feeling the requirement not to share pain and trauma because we feel that we are under attack and that our faculties are constantly being measured and taken to be some sort of indication of our mental health. I mean, I'm trans and I'm gay. These are things that not that long ago were considered mental health conditions in themselves. And having additional mental health issue of any kind can even impact one's diagnosis so just as trans, because trans was also a diagnosis. Only very recently it changed. And that was literally in terms of the ICD-11 happened this year. It was officially changed that gender dysphoria is no longer considered to be some sort of pathology. But if you have another mental health issue, your classification as trans officially may be impacted. So we're often 
in this horrible position of somehow needing to justify our mental health. We're perfectly fine and we can choose, you know, with sound mind and body that we're trans or queer. And this constant onslaught, we, we can defend ourselves, we're robust. Mm. So admitting to any mental health issue in that context can feel especially vulnerable. And also it's a potential political problem. If one is, say, an activist or an independent scholar, and someone does a lot of work on this in their area. And yet the notion that I could somehow be trans and gay and queer in this culture and not have raging PTSD <laughs> seems entirely unlikely. And so recently I've come to the conclusion, <laughs> show me a queer that doesn't have PTSD and I will be astounded because how on earth can you live in this culture and not suffer from trauma and thus suffer from the characteristics of trauma is astounding. I don't want to go into the specifics. I can probably say without making myself too vulnerable that some of it most certainly has to do with violence and threat of violence as an adult. Being openly trans and queer does bring that about, and I have certainly had those experiences. But weirdly enough, I was able to cope with them much better than most because I'd had those experiences also earlier in my life. And those are the instances that I won't talk about. Not right now. I may mm. in the future. So for all those reasons and more, it's extremely difficult to talk about this topic. It causes genuine pain and consternation, but also a fear of what might come and how I might be judged in future because of it. Because we don't, as a culture, entirely accept mental health issues as a legitimate and perfectly normal response to trauma and therefore accept it like one would any other ailment. I was told by my partner when I was worried and she said, but if you had a broken leg, would you expect me? to have that reaction. I said, no, of course not. She's like, it's the same thing. And she said, it's not the same thing, of course, but in terms of her reaction to it, it and in that sense, I really love her and you, Dr. Chay and others who hold that perspective. And I am well, mm. and I feel in control of those superpowers, those characteristics. I don't want to call them symptoms and I certainly don't want to call them problems. I spent too long believing I was somehow broken, that I didn't function properly that there was something wrong with me. Well, no, there wasn't anything wrong with me. If you look at the factors that lead to certain things, <laughs> it's a perfectly normal sort of knockoff. All the things you do are a natural consequence of those things happening. So much so that we can produce a narrative result. We can say, if you do this to someone at a certain age, in a certain way, the likelihood is this, because of course it is. How can you not be traumatized by living as queer in this culture, by constant messages that you're not valid, by constantly being told that you are somehow misguided or you are having a mental health issue because of your mere identity or being physically attacked or constantly being under assault, emotional, physical, sexual, mm. you name it, it happens. And you are constantly afraid of it. Of course, that leads to certain sets of behaviors, constant vigilance, <laughs> one of them, you know, forgetting traumas being another, trying to just survive, a sense of humor being another. You're constantly covering this up with humor. And it works because you're funny. You're really funny. Mm. You're really good at this. So why so many of you comedians? Yeah, it's what we do. <sighs> I apologize for the monologue. Much like Jay, I, I feel that I'm spilling my guts, but it's that thing of 
sometimes it's not easy to begin talking about. So you just start and, and what comes out comes out. And my professional interest in this is in part because I've been trying to understand it all my life and trying to understand my own mental processes because I've known that I was different in some way all my life. Obviously, I knew that I was trans. I didn't know that I was neuroatypical. That's new. Yeah, I know. You're laughing because, of course, you do. Yeah, I'm the last to know. P.S. I'm also the last to know that I was trans. Everybody seemed to know before I told them. Really, really annoying. <laughs> we knew. And because, like, how did you know? It's like, how did we not? Jesus Christ, you've been screaming at us in every way for years. And, of course, I didn't know that. Of course, I couldn't cope with that because I thought that my history was such a shameful, shameful secret. And of course, it's not. It is probably going to be a set of monologue from each of us. But this is part of the other person giving space and holding the other person while they're talking, which has been a lot of what we've been doing when we've been talking to each other. I know that I have a habit of when I'm getting deep into some of this stuff, I can't meet somebody's eyes. I've got to look off and look away and do things. And that's simply to control what's inside my head a little bit. I have had breakdowns and stuff in workplaces for, well, quite a while. We'll just go for quite a while. And every single time until ThoughtWorks, the narrative was shut up about your mental health. Keep quiet about it. That's private. You've got to be more private about that. So what that meant was there was a sense of shame around the struggles that I was having with my mental health. There was a sense of, if only you tried harder to be more normal, then you wouldn't be like this. And that comes all the way through from when I was a kid. Even though I have two of my three parents very obviously having mental health challenges to deal with, there was always a narrative that this was something shameful, that you couldn't talk about it with anyone. I couldn't tell anyone that I had been attempting suicide. And one of the things that I will say here, and I don't know whether my New Zealand crew are listening to this, my New Zealand now. one of the reasons that I'm here today is that when I had the worst of my breakdowns, some of my friends literally did not leave me alone. And at the time they got me into the mental health system in New Zealand as an outpatient quite quickly, got me on some medication that at least took some of that urgency out of what was going on and gave me space to at least consider because one of the things that I found was all I needed was the space from the screaming inside my head to figure out what was causing the pain. For me, the suicidal ideations that drive to make it all stop isn't about a desire to die. It's about a desire to stop the pain. You've got that running on while you're trying to run through your everyday and that is really, really, really difficult. I look back and think about how I was in New Zealand at various points, and I don't know how I made it through. I literally don't know what kept me not driving into the barrier. I think you do. I think you do. I think you told us. The chosen people in your life. Mm. You, told them, you told us exactly how you did it. You, you had those chosen people in your life, and you sought out help. And you got it from them and from the institutional places that you needed it from. You learned about your own impulses, that, where they came from and why they exist. You know exactly how you survive. <laughs> I am completely baffled by human beings, almost on a daily basis. 
So the ways in which I learned about them was by literally studying. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, okay, let's figure out what these people keep doing. It's made me understand that psychology is logical, almost always. When somebody wears a tinfoil hat on their head and says, it's to protect me from the alien rays, they're acting logically if their assumptions are correct. If you said, actually, there are aliens in the sky and those aliens project a ray and tinfoil bounces those off, that person is now acting rationally. The only difference is the aliens aren't there, <laughs> but the behavior is logical. The same thing happens with self-harm impulses, with suicidal ideation. Self-harm is often misunderstood as self-destruction, doing things that would seem to the outside world to be completely unfathomable. That's why mental health issues are so scary to people, because they're so incomprehensible in some regards. They seem so counterintuitive. But living in a world that is so constantly traumatizing might want to make you feel like exiting the situation, which is logical. It's a logical extension. If you're in a world that is constantly traumatizing you and causing you pain, you want that pain to stop. You don't want to not live. You don't want to die. If you were given another option that said, we can take away that pain and you get to live, you would take it immediately. This is logic. Psychology isn't mythical. It's not. You're predictable because you're logical. And because you're logical and predictable, it can be assisted, can be helped because you're logical. Because the things that you do, the reactions you have, the coping me mechanisms you create in this culture are predictable. And that's what's so upsetting about discrimination and oppression. We know what happens when you systematically discriminate against someone and oppress them. This is the kind of thing that happens. And yet we still let it happen in our society. We're okay in some regards. Because if you say to someone, well, are women treated worse than men generally in this society? They might say, yeah, generally, you know, I can predict that. It's like, okay, go do something about it. Yeah, and it can't be that bad. And it's like, no, but you know <laughs> that causing this behavior causes this logical outcome. Why would you do that to people? And you start to realize the phrase, it takes a fool to remain sane, starts to make much more sense. Because mm. this culture is absolutely batshit. Absolutely. And I think you make such a valid point there. If we are examples of what happens when you have people who are systemically discriminated against, what was the word I came up with the other day, historically not included, then you end up with your mental health issues become so much exacerbated. Yeah. And those cycles perpetuate. There's a thing that happens in LGBTQ politics where I've often seen this from people who don't like trans people, for example. They'll say, look at the statistics. Trans people are statistically much more likely to have mental health issues. That must mean being mentally ill is part of being trans. That is, if you're a philosophy person like me, a post hoc ergo proctor hoc mistake. After, therefore, because of, or more specifically, causation is very rarely the reason two things go together. It's often <laughs> correlation. Correlation in this case might be you're trans in a society that doesn't like trans people very much, which causes mental health issues. And it's one of the things that comes out in research, that the more you affirm young kids' ideas of gender and sexuality, the more you affirm their self-identity, the more you affirm who they are, the happier they are. 
sometimes people sort of laugh at studies that come out that prove the blindingly obvious, right? And it's sort of like, you know, the university of obvious things. Why on earth are you giving money for that to be figured out? Well, because some people just don't seem to take the fucking clue. You have to just literally give them a bit of paper and says, look, this works. So yes, there have been several studies that show if you recognize a child's gender and their name, they are much more likely to not have significant mental health issues that they have concerns or challenges with, that they're going to be happier, that they're going to be well, that it's going to help them. Now, they don't have to do anything else. This is just just validating their sense of self, because of course it would. Again, back to that notion of psychology as logic. Mm-hmm. PTSD is a funny thing. Post-traumatic stress disorder. I hate the word disorder. It always annoys me, but let's just keep it for now. Usually what happens is a traumatic event happens. You make an association and anxiety that goes with it. You can't process it correctly and you relive it over and over again. That's post-traumatic stress disorder. When it was initially discovered in the study, it was usually related to things that had been discrete, as in it had a beginning and an end. Say, for example, a car crash. You were in a car crash. It had a beginning. It had an end. After it had ended, you developed this anxiety reaction that caused a problem to your daily life, and we are now treating that. You were in a war. These things caused prolonged traumatic events, but there was a discrete beginning and there was a discrete end. Living as queer or different or being black or a person of color or being disabled, being different in this culture is a constant trauma. Complex PTSD is a condition that has recently been discovered and is about those people who have traumatic events happen in their life constantly, over and over and over and over again, often very similar, perhaps perpetrated by the same people, abuse, for example, over a long period of time, or constant stress that never ends. That is the life of anyone who lives in a culture that discriminates against them. You are constantly being traumatized. Therefore, how can you survive this world without developing the coping mechanisms that are characteristics of complex PTSD? I have no idea. One of the coping mechanisms that's very popular for people who have PTSD is overwork. As in, you distract yourself with everything and anything. You cannot abide a quiet moment because if you stop you start to remember and you start to think and you start to feel and because you can't cope and it's so overwhelming, you try to fill your day from beginning to end so that you fall asleep exhausted and never have to worry. Culture values that overwork Mm. and it doesn't value self-care and it doesn't value reflection. It doesn't value, hey, you're living in this society in a really traumatic way. Maybe you should have some time to deal with that. I'm lucky because as a workaholic, because that's one of the side effects of this, of you pour yourself into work, you get your validation from work because you can't get it from the rest of society. As somebody who naturally is quite a workaholic, are you okay? I can stop for a minute. Yeah, it's good. You sure? Yeah, no, no, we'll carry on. Just get a cry. Because <laughs> that's a normal reaction to what we're talking about. This is the thing about what, what I'm trying to say, and that's what I'm trying to normalize this notion of mental health is this is a perfectly logical and normal reaction to what's happened. Trying oh yeah. To stay stoic, trying to stay um, unaffected is actually really, really damaging. 
And it's not broken, it's just damaging. Hmm. Neither of us are broken. We are simply reproducing a perfectly normal reaction. So being sad and crying at the moment because of what you're talking about, empathizing with you and the valuing of ourselves through our work because we aren't valued by the culture that we live in is a normal reaction is to be sad. Hmm. And I'm sad. So please carry on. I'm just going to cry and that's okay. (laughs) That's okay. I'm just making, I'm just checking in. Yeah, you're a good person. <laughs> One of the things that I wanted to touch on here, it's come to mind simply because talking about finding that way back, I got to a certain point where I was on my way back. I was starting to come back. And then my ex-partner decided to kill himself and succeeded. And I add the and succeeded because like myself, there had been more than one attempt at various points. And that was hugely traumatic for myself, for my partner, for a group of us. And I think that's got a big thing to do with queer and mental health and things like that. We unfortunately have too many people who we lose to suicide and it's huge and it often impacts us and we don't talk about it. We don't sit down. We don't do those morning rituals together and I mean those those rituals around grief and despair and reflecting and understanding because there is a lot of anger there is a lot of shame there is a lot of what ifs there is a lot of I should haves there's so much stuff that comes up when somebody kills themselves and our community doesn't quite know how to deal with it despite it's been a constant I can think of it being a constant thing ever since I came out. That's more than what people outside of our community have to deal with. And yet, because we're trying to be stoic, we don't talk about how shit it is to live in this society when you are historically not included. How shit it is to be part of this group that historically isn't included in even discussions about ourselves, even discussions about our own lives. What I was going to say, and I've finished crying now, so that's good. I can probably say this without breaking up as much as I was. What Jay talks about is really important. The astounding capacity of the human mind to accept things as normal. To accept abuse as love as normal. To accept discrimination as normal. To accept rampant cultural violence as normal to accept suicide in our own community as normal to accept this political imperative to seem stalwart as normal one of the ways in which you survive trauma if it's ongoing is to somehow get your brain to accept that this is normal and okay because if you didn't you wouldn't be able to cope and you would die your brain wouldn't be able to cope it's trying to save you so one of the solutions to that when the normal that you're accepting is unacceptable is to change what is normal to change the normal to change the normal response to the normal to accept that a mental health issue is a normal response to normalized oppression normalized discrimination normalized notions that certain people are not included will lead to a normal response which is a normal massive health issue that comes from massive mental health challenges that is normal 
to grieve in our own community is normal, to insist that the world see this, recognize what it is doing to us and make that normal, for Black Lives Matter to be made normal, for people to be accepted, to be given access to society should be normal. And then our mental health issues that are normalized in our community might not be there in the same way. You've said it all. Thanks. And I'm sad, but I'm happy. And I'm okay. And it's okay to be sad. I'm sad, but that's okay. Hmm. And I am okay. I don't think we can do our usual joke, although maybe we can to break the tension of our anxiety and sadness to make ourselves laugh again, because I'm a silly creature and I can't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> really to crack a joke. That's just how I am. So, Dr. J, what are we going to talk about next week? Should we discuss her next week? I'd rather go off and have a wonderful, pleasant life, feeling like I'm included as part of society. Thank you very much. And good night. And good night. was good are you okay no but that's okay i'm okay uh, i'm i'm normal for a given value of normal, You're normal. <laughs> actually i'm well how about that i'm well so am i <laughs>